I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling. And once again, we begin the morning show on 680 CJOB with another national tragedy involving death and carnage. From a vehicular standpoint, in this case, a far different scenario than the tragedy that occurred in Humboldt. Um, you know, I uh, saw the news yesterday, Greg, and I just thought, I didn't even know how to react because, you know, we're still getting over what happened in Saskatchewan. And uh, that was just a really horrible tragedy, whereas this is something, this is the kind of headline that you read in coming from other countries, whether it's the United States or across the Atlantic in Europe, we we hear about these things to see it happen in Canada. Is, uh, it's, uh, it hurts. There's a lot of questions about who this man is that is uh, the suspect. We saw, by now you've seen the video of the police arresting this man. You may even have interpreted or realized that this man essentially asked police to kill him. The police refused to do that. They've taken him into custody. He will appear in court later on this morning. And I immediately thought of two things, Brett. The first thing I thought of is what happened in Edmonton last year, uh, roughly a, a year ago. And then I thought about the number of people that are gathering for Winnipeg Jets games. Mm-hmm. Yep. Downtown Winnipeg. Yeah, we just had a conversation about this yesterday before yesterday morning. We did. We did. Uh, with so many people downtown uh, in Winnipeg, one has to wonder uh, if there will be increased security measures. Um, and Game 6 of the Boston Bruins-Toronto Maple Leafs game last night did go on as scheduled at Toronto's Air Canada Centre last night. Maple Leafs won, by the way, tied that series up. That's right. And as we've been doing here in Winnipeg, as they've been doing for years in Toronto, public watch parties in Maple Leaf Square, just outside Toronto's downtown arena, took place. And um, there were some modified security measures. Rob Leth of Global News in Toronto gives us a recap. An odd turn, but this story has even reached out to the Leafs and Game 6 between the Leafs and Bruins at the ACC. Rob Lath is down there tonight. Rob, we know that even before the game started, there was a, a moment of silence. Obviously, fans happy. They did come out with a win tonight, but, you know, acknowledging what happened in the city of Toronto today. Well, that's right, Crystal. Just hours after the unthinkable happened up in North York, many fans were probably asking themselves whether or not they wanted to come watch a hockey game tonight out in such a public space. But they did come, and they came by the thousands, determined not to let a senseless act alter their way of life. As the fans filled Maple Leaf Square, they did so with heavy hearts. It's our first time coming down, and we were really pumped to come down. And then when uh, the unfortunate events happened, it kind of put a damper on it, and we were unsure whether we should, but we decided to come out. Just hours after the tragic events on Young Street, security enhancements were clearly visible in the immediate vicinity of the Air Canada Centre, closed off streets, extra concrete barriers on the sidewalks and roads, and an increased police presence. Obviously something like that happening is terrible and tragic, and I feel for all the families involved. But at the same time, you can't let them like destroy your sense of adventure, your sense of city. Before the game, a moment of silence with a black and white aerial view of Young Street displayed on the scoreboard. Not a peep from the more than 19,000 fans inside the Air Canada Centre. Our thoughts and prayers are with uh, 
the families of the people that uh, lost their lives today and all the people that are injured. Senseless deaths, to say the least, uh, changes the new normal in a family's life forever. At the end of the day, the Leafs gave the fans plenty to cheer about, forcing a Game 7 with a 3-1 victory, a win that is hard to put into context on a day filled with so much sorrow, at the very least, a nice distraction. Sports don't really matter in, in the moment, but I think that afterwards it brings people together and it, it's uh, something that you can, you can, it can unite people. So um, it, was, it was great for us to get the win and uh, just feel awful for, for all the families and, and, and the victims. So given the context of what happened today, a hockey game is just that, a hockey game. doesn't really matter, but for fans of the team that loved the Leafs so much, it was a big game tonight, and at least there is some joy in a city where so many people are hurting. Thank you. That's Rob Leff and Toronto Global News reporter. And it was actually September 30th, 2017, only seven months ago, that incident took place in Edmonton that I referred to outside Commonwealth Stadium. The Bombers were, in fact, the visiting team in Edmonton that night. So Bob Irving and Doug Brown were in Edmonton for that game. So these things um, hit particularly close to home, right? Because there aren't too many of us that don't have friends in Toronto. Maybe have never, you know, have been to Toronto ourselves. And if you've been to Toronto, you've been on Young Street, not necessarily this stretch of Young Street. That's uh, more in North York, north of the main downtown area of Toronto, but you can certainly uh, relate to this. We all have connections to this part of the world in one way or another. So this is uh, affecting all of us today, of course. And uh, just in case you need a a refresher on the Edmonton attack that happened uh, last year, September 30th, there was, uh, uh, there were five people were injured. Uh, There was uh, a man who was hit and stabbed and then uh, another four pedestrians were hit with a rental truck during a police chase. All four injured survived and were hospitalized and then there was also the fifth person who uh, survived as well. Clearly our top story of the day, yesterday's tragedy, this incident in downtown Toronto, North York to be more specific. On Young Street, we will be talking about that when we have coffee. We'll gather everyone from the newsroom, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, Shanley Vidal, behind the glass, Jerry. We'll talk about how this is affecting us this morning. We'd like to know how it's affecting you. 204-780-6868. Another national tragedy on this Tuesday morning. And uh, the top story at cjob.com. Right now, the headline, Winnipeg fans blocked from buying tickets to NHL playoff games in Nashville. Now, Greg, I am not familiar with uh, buying hockey tickets. I don't know what policies is. Is this a scandalous event or is this par for the course? Not really. Uh, This, I think, as much started, uh, at least in the NHL, started in Washington uh, Pittsburgh and Washington have quite the heated rivalry and the Washington Capitals don't have the season ticket base the Pittsburgh Penguins do and so when the Capitals and the Penguins would face off in the playoffs uh, the Capitals home arena was susceptible to being invaded by Penguins fans Oh, and so they on Ticketmaster created some some geographical boundaries based on the credit card being used uh, to prevent as many as possible Penguins fans from getting to Capitals games. And I imagine it's been done in other circumstances in the past, but the Nashville Predators are once again enforcing this policy. And this, I think, as much as anything, 
Once again, credit Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's uh, close enough to Nashville that it's a fairly easy drive and or flight from Pittsburgh to Nashville. And in the in the Stanley Cup final last year, I think they were worried about Pittsburgh fans getting their hands on tickets in the uh, in the and in the NHL Championship Stanley Cup final. So the uh, Predators announced that they have a restricted sales area. It's been implemented for Nashville Predators games at Bridgestone Arena. Sales will be restricted to residents of the Nashville Predators television viewing area: Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. And they are using the residency requirement based on the credit card billing address and the and the Jets do something similar I suppose there aren't really very many tickets available for Winnipeg Jets games less than a thousand per game go Mm -hmm. on sale to the general public and so uh, most tickets get gobbled up by those that are on the season ticket waiting list that's uh, between seven and eight thousand people and so tickets don't necessarily go on sale to the general public. I can count on all my fingers and toes the number of Minnesota Wild fans that I saw in the two playoff games that I attended. Uh, they were few and far between. I would say maybe a half a dozen okay. I saw b- between the two games. So uh, this is not very common for for teams, uh, fans, of, from other cities to get their hands on tickets in Winnipeg. I think it might be more common in a city like Nashville. Yeah, Rob Wozni with True North Sports and Entertainment told Global News uh, they too will give preferential treatment to fans uh, for ticket sales to games at Bell MTS Place, where he says, we have taken measures to restrict individual ticket sales to our broadcast area by offering a pre-sale opportunity to Winnipeg Jets mail subscribers. And he says these measures should help ensure local tickets are purchased by local fans. Um Thinking of signing up for a credit card in Tennessee? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. There's another way you could go about this. You could get creative and maybe befriend someone in the Predators approved geography. You might have to stand in line if you thought country singer and Winnipeg are now living in Nashville. Leanne Pearson was an option. Leanne was on the news with Richard and Julie yesterday afternoon, and she tell she told Richard and Judy that Julie that she's had plenty of people reaching out for a ticket favor. Yes old high school friends or people be like, Hey, remember me from grade five? <laughs> because it, it is people difficult to get, woodwork. it's tricky to get tickets, isn't it? It is, you know, it's, I, I just, I can't believe it. I'm even shocked just to hear the news, but I guess it makes sense, right? Pearson's going to be cheering on her hometown team despite some of the treatment she has received at Bridgestone Arena in the past while wearing a Jets jersey. Oh, they're so harsh. When I first moved here, I got popcorn thrown at me when uh, when the two teams faced off here, and some some pretty awful experiences. But luckily, I got some thick skin on me, and I just want to root root for our boys, you know. Well, I have a feeling that uh, Jets fans will find their way into Bridgestone Arena one way or another, regardless of the policies laid out by the Nashville Predators. Now, as far as the NHL is concerned, apparently you can thank NHL expansion for Arena Rock. That from musicologist Alan Cross. Hal Anderson has the story. That is Cream, playing the L.A. Forum in 1968. 
one of the first arena rock shows. By the way, opening act, Deep Purple. New rinks were built when the NHL expanded, and the owners of those rinks needed to put more butts in seats outside of hockey games. And as Alan Cross explains, that's how Arena Rock was born. As a result of in the NHL, and to a certain extent, uh, American Basketball Association expansion, uh, we ended up with all these rock shows being staged in, in these buildings. And that is the beginning of the Arena Rock era. However, there were problems. Rock was relatively new. We got to go back 50, 50 years. Uh, this music was still up and coming. Rock and roll was maybe, you know, at best 15 years old. Right. So uh, it was still coming into its own, and there were a lot of problems. I mean, sound systems back then were absolutely terrible. Big, high-quality sound systems just didn't exist unless bands built them on their own. People had not invested money and research and technical expertise into building proper sound systems. But uh, with the beginning, really, with the Beach Boys in about 1965, who were on some theater tours, they developed their own sound system, which for the time was pretty good. And Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass was doing the same thing, and they built their own sound system as well. Later, uh, the Grateful Dead would come along and build something called, uh, I think they called it their Wall of Sound. And it wasn't just the money. These bands and their very healthy egos also loved the much bigger crowds. The birth of Arena Rock. Interesting story. Well, I had him on the phone. I asked Alan about Stadium Rock. The Bombers last week announced a $5 million profit last year, in part because of that big Guns N' Roses show at IGF. But Cross isn't so sure concerts like that will continue. The problem is we're running out of Stadium Rock-sized bands. We have done a very lousy job over the last 20 years of creating bands that will eventually succeed the U2s, the Guns N' Roses of, of, of the world. Uh, we don't have, you know, maybe the Foo Fighters have come along, maybe Muse has come along to fill that kind of, uh, those kinds of venues, but we're running in short supply. So we may not see, you know, single bands headlining stadium shows anymore, but we may see, you know, caravan shows like Lollapalooza coming in with a day-long sort of thing. You can hear more Alan Cross on our brother station, Power 97, where he is the host of the ongoing history of new music. Thank you very much, Hal Anderson. And we also have some congratulations to offer to our buddy Hal Anderson, who is officially taking over the afternoon slot from 1 to 4. I mean, he's been doing it now for... God, I guess it's been eight months. September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, eight months. Yay, we can count. Yay. And uh, he's been doing it on a on a temporary or interim basis while he's been doing continuing to do Hal Anderson weekends. Unreal, man. Seven days a week. Yeah, we. I mean, Greg and I both work six days a week. Hal's been going seven days a week uh, for the most part right through. He'd occasionally record a show, which is actually almost as much work to record a show as it is to do one live. It's actually more work. So Truth he, be known. Yeah, and uh, I don't know how he did it without burning out. So congratulations to him. Hal Anderson weekends will continue until May 5th when Clay Young is going to take over. Clay man. The congratulations, Clay man. man. There's suddenly a forecast. Uh, the weekend forecast is calling for mayhem <laughs> and chaos Indeed. with the Clay man. You know what? I was at this, uh, the ALS Cornflower Ball at the Victoria, and I was the MC on Saturday. And Clay Young was uh, what he came. We, a uh, chorus had a table, and Clay was one of the guests. And <laughs> Clay brings his recorder everywhere. 
And he does interviews everywhere. He actually interviewed Diana Rasmussen, the executive director of the ALS Society of Manitoba. He carted her off to a quiet spot and interviewed her, and then he interviewed a doctor that was in attendance. I don't know what he's working on, but he's always doing interviews. You might remember where he interviewed Traveler the Cat. One of his most famous interviews by by far. Where he was at Assiniboine Park, and he saw a woman walking a cat on a leash, and he stuck the microphone in Traveler's face and said, Hi, Traveler. Hi. You want to say hi to CJOB? And the cat meowed. So... Anyway, congratulations, Hal and Clay. We are lucky to have both of you back in this building. Country is still dealing with the aftermath of the Humboldt bus crash, and now we're confronted by another tragedy, a rented van plowed down a crowded Toronto sidewalk yesterday, killing 10 people and injuring 15 before the driver fled and was quickly arrested in a confrontation with police. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will make a public statement in less than an hour from now. Here's Global National's Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman, who is just on with our sister station, Toronto's AM640. I was in the House of Commons yesterday as of about 1.30 when the first details of this started to emerge. And it was exactly, as you say, just a sense of people anxious to find out what's going on because, you know, they cared to know what's happening and they cared to know about the people and the, and the city uh, affected. So the first question in question period was from uh, the leader of the Conservatives to the Prime Minister, just asking for some more details as to what happened. And by that point, 2.15, you know, there weren't many to provide. Uh, the Prime Minister did issue a statement last night where he called it a tra- tragic and senseless attack and thanked the first responders and also said we should all feel safe walking in our cities and communities. And we are. I wonder what your first thoughts were on this when you heard about it. Uh, Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Shanalee Vidal, and behind the glass, Jerry. I, I, I don't know what your first thought was, Kelly. And mine was geography. And so when I hear Toronto, I think of the people that I know in Toronto. Yeah, I, I know we have to keep this short here. So I'll just say that this brings us in to the what the rest of the world has been going through. Short and sweet. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, uh, Greg referenced earlier the attack in Edmonton. Wikipedia actually has a page, 20, the 2017 Edmonton attack, where uh, a man was hit by a vehicle and then stabbed, and then uh, another four pedestrians were hit, and now you have this attack in Toronto. Shanalee, what was your uh, reaction when you heard about it? Uh, just not again. This, You know, these these types of things, be it in Canada or elsewhere, they're just... They're happening too frequently, and and you know we're the ones who are bringing the stories to you, and we're the ones reporting on it. So it's it's hard on us too. It's hard on listeners. It's hard on everyone affected, and it's just it's just very very disheartening. And and yeah. Jeff, you have geographic ties to this part of the world. Uh, yeah, I got some friends that live out there. They're all okay, so that's good. I I thought it is. It's always a bummer, no matter what. But again, so close to the humble thing that's like, come on, give us a break, you know. A month without some really just tragic news would be okay. Yeah, Greg found uh, something here that the Canadian press has put together. A list of attacks involving vans running into people over past years. And since 2001, February 14th, 2001, there are 16 of them. Uh, the fir- this first one on this list is in Israel. Uh, but you have attacks in Israel, uh, Beijing, uh, France, Ohio, and uh Edmonton. Multiple, multiple attacks in London. Right. Yeah. And this list, and I guess this now to Toronto now makes 17 because uh, that's not on uh, this list here. So, my, I mean, my thought is what are we supposed to do? Put up barriers along every sidewalk? Okay. When, we, when you create, when you build a new road, do you have to have a sidewalk with a barrier alongside? I don't want to live in a world like that, but 
you know, at the same time, would you kind of wonder about your safety at, at, after a certain amount of attacks like this? Jerry? Well, like you say, there's been, what, 17 since 2001? It's really not that many in the grand scheme of things. So uh, I don't feel unsafe. But the first thing I was thinking of when I heard this was, oh, Young Street. Uh, where on Young Street? Uh, because I do know people right in downtown Toronto, but uh, thankfully, you know, they, they never go to that part of town. So I, I, I felt relief. And I mean, I, I feel bad for saying that, but I felt relief that no one I knew uh, got hurt. I think uh, that's natural. Uh, well, well, it may be, but, you know, there was a lot of people who did, did get hurt. Oh, and uh, and you just, you just, you know, then you feel guilty. Well, you know, these people had families as well. Of course. Uh, we just got three text messages, by the way, uh, regarding a crash. This is going to be bad. This is a crash at Dugald and Lajemodier. Um So one text says it's uh, affecting eastbound Dugald. The next text says the curb lane of southbound Lajemodier is blocked. So Lajemodier southbound curb lane is blocked at Dugald. Uh, only the curb lane of eastbound Dugald is open. A uh, tow truck will be needed. This is involving two vehicles, and traffic is backing up. Backing up. So again, Lage and Dugald, southbound Lage Modier, and eastbound Dugald are affected. So watch out for that. I think the first reaction for a lot of people that this is terrorism, right? That, I think that's what a lot of us imagine. There's been no proof of that. Uh, there's n- nothing confirmed, but nothing ruled out at the same time. Uh, police and, and Ralph Goodale, Goodale, the federal minister, saying, you know, we have every reason to believe that we're safe in our country and this isn't a coordinated attack. But beyond that, they're not saying very much. One of the things I really uh, uh, that struck me, and, and it certainly resonated with me driving into work this morning on Drex's show, he's our overnight host, does a wonderful job on his national radio show, and he will not name the uh, the driver. Yeah, I'm not using uh, just his because, name yeah, because he doesn't want to publicize it. A uh, caller came in and said, let's refer to him as the coward. And uh, I certainly wouldn't have any issue with that uh, uh, either. So, I, I, I mean, I, at some point you have to identify who it is, but I'm glad that there are journalists like yourself, Greg, and like Drex, that are not giving this guy any more time in the spotlight than, uh, I don't even want to say what he deserves, but but what he's going to get. Thank you very much, Kelly Moore, Shannon Lee Vidal, Behind the Glass, Jerry, and Jeff Braun. Right now, we turn our attention back to Toronto for our top story. The man suspected of running down numerous pedestrians with a rented van on a bustling north end stretch of Toronto's Young Street is scheduled to appear in court this morning. Police say charges against the man from nearby Richmond Hill will be revealed at that time. Here's Global Sean O'Shea with how the events from Monday unfolded. Normal life after the noon hour went from calm to chaos in only seconds. Anybody in this path, they were flying in the air. A man driving this white van mowing down pedestrians walking on the sidewalk in North Toronto. I ran because everyone was running, so I only saw the first lady get hit. One pedestrian struck and then another. You can see where the dead body is, so he hit him pretty hard. The driver moving at 70 kilometers per hour southbound on Young Street, the best-known thoroughfare in the city. Witnesses said the driver had a purpose. It's definitely in control what he was doing, not like impairment. Police moved in when the van pulled over. Two officers confronting the driver, who had an unidentified object in hand. The driver yelling at police to shoot him. They didn't. They're both aiming at the same time, just like the movie. All this as emergency crews fanned out to help the injured, performing CPR on those who were so suddenly struck down. 
When it was over, the toll was staggering. Unfortunately, uh, we have uh, 10 people that have succumbed to their injuries, and we have 15 that are in various hospitals across the city. Police named their suspect. We have under arrest Alex Manassian, age 25. Uh, right now, it appears he's from Richmond Hill. Toronto's mayor asking a city to come together. This kind of tragic incident is not representative of how we live or who we are or anything to do with uh, life in the city on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. So people across the country are thinking about what's happening here in Toronto and are thinking about the families. The question, was this organized terrorism? The events that happened on the street behind us are horrendous, but they do not appear to be connected in any way to national security based on the information available at this time. Unfortunately, I witnessed a few people pass away in front of me. A shocking scene witnesses won't be able to erase from memories. He just kept going down one by one, one by one. Oh my God, wow. I can't believe I saw this. This is crazy. Police say they'll spend days piecing together what happened. The chief says, despite it, the city is safe. Sean O'Shea, Global News, Toronto. Now you just heard an emotional man at the end of that report from Sean O'Shea. His name, Ali Shaker. He was driving behind the van during the incident. Here are some of his extended comments. Everyone is shocked. I, I stood for a second right here, just wondering what is going on. And he just went down the next block and then smashed into one lady. She went flying in the air. Oh my God. And then the, the cops, they, they happened to be at the corner right when this happened. They were like pulling up from that street, side street. They were pulling up and they saw a woman on the street, tow truck. Next thing you know, another set of people, because I started driving down. I started driving down, I seen a stroller flying. Do oh. you think he hit a baby? Probably a, ba a mother with a baby or something, because it's right by the shops over there. The buildings, right, right below those buildings, there's, um, there's shops below them. There's a stroller, there was another lady in a bus stop smashed into then I was drove down. I just seen by I thought it was a virus or some kind of air something going on or or, or someone had a heart attack or something and he just he, he's he's not stopping because his his feet is on the gas and he's going but it's it, it looked like he was doing it intentionally and he just kept going down one by one, one by one. How fast was he driving? Oh he, that's why I couldn't catch up because I could have I could have caught up to him and tried to do something. He's going 60, 70, at least 70, 80 kilometers an hour. On the sidewalk. On the sidewalk. Tell us how you're feeling right now, sir. I'm numb. I'm, I, I was looking for my mom and dad. My mom's not here, my dad. I thought my dad was walking around somewhere, so I started driving to see if my dad's going for a walk. He goes for walks. I'm, I'm numb. I've seen people with their body parts right at Young and Empress. I saw with my own eyes at least 20, 25 people. So you were driving in your car behind him? Like, tell us it, what you were it, it was like a movie. It was a scene out of a movie when you see bodies laying down at sidewalks, one by one, one by one, one after another. He was already gone. He's going 80, remember, he's going 70, 80 clicks. I'm going at 5, 10 kilometers shaking, watching people that are on the sidewalk already hit. And I'm trying to see what is going on. You, at that moment, you don't know what to do. Your body, your mind, your body, everything goes up. It's up in the air. You're just, you're looking at body parts now. I'm looking at people one by one on the sidewalks. Wow. An emotional accounting from Ali Shaker who witnessed 
the carnage on Young Street yesterday and when he talks about looking for his dad and wondering if his dad was out for a walk because his dad frequently does just that and that part of Young Street, uh, you realize how personal, never mind what he's seen, but all the mixes of emotion that this man has gone through uh, just in the previous half hour or so before that conversation took place. Very, very powerful audio. Any excuse for uh, Jerry to get Queen into the morning show? I think you're right. (laughs) There's a new way to make sure your bike gets back to you if it's stolen. I think it's about time they've done this. City is... uh, well, they're bringing back the bike registry. Global News reporter Diana Foxall explains. It's a terrific resource for all Winnipeg cyclists and citizens. The registry will provide an affordable way for the public to increase their chances of being reunited with their bicycles should they be lost or stolen. Winnipeg City Councillor Mike Pactican is understandably pleased the city is taking its bike registry online. It's an initiative meant to make it easier for people not only to register their bikes, but also easier to get them back should the bike be stolen or lost. And Winnipeg Police Inspector Jody Sutherland says bike theft is a growing concern in the city. Throughout the city, we've experienced a significant increase in bicycle theft. The number of reported bikes stolen in 2017 was over 2,800 bicycles stolen. Many lost and stolen bicycles are not reported to police. We have a good reason to believe that number is actually significantly higher. She says police often come across stolen bikes before their owners even realize they're missing. On countless occasions, we recover bicycles that are not yet reported stolen. And what that means is that we may recover the bike overnight while it's being used in another offense or it's been abandoned after it's been stolen before homeowners may notice the bike actually even missing. Police officers will be able to access the database of all registered bikes while on the job. Citizens who register their bikes will have a much greater likelihood of having their bikes returned to them very quickly should police recover it during their course during the course of their duties having a bike on the registry dramatically reduces the amount of time it takes to reunite the bike with the owner and police say if they match a bike and a serial number in the registry they can get it back to you almost immediately and it's easy to get your bike on the database all you need is a credit card to pay the six dollar sixty cent fee and your bike serial number you can also upload three photos of the bike to its profile making it easier to identify should it go missing you ever have to get the bike uh, license plate? I have not rode a bike since I was, I think, 15. But when you were a kid, did, did uh, like I live, when I lived in Brandon, you had to get a, a license plate for your bike. Really? And before that in Winnipeg, you went to the fire station, I think, and registered your bike and they gave you like a little mini little, mini little license plate. So was I illegally riding my bike the whole no, time? No, I think they just got rid of the program maybe before you started riding bicycle. Yeah, I don't remember ever having to do that. Yeah, I? and you know, I, I don't know why the city ever got rid of that. Uh, bicycle theft is a huge problem in our city, and bikes are not a hundred bucks anymore. They're they're hundreds of dollars for a good bike. It's not uncommon to spend uh, fifteen hundred bucks on a bike. <laughs> All right, it is now time for Breakfast with the Bombers, brought to you by the Cooperators. Find an advisor at cooperators.ca, a better place for you. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are kicking off mini camp this morning at Investors Group Field. And to tell us more, we're joined now by Winnipeg Blue Bombers head coach, Mike O'Shea. Good morning, Coach O'Shea. How are you guys doing this morning? We're doing all right. You've got to be pumped up, man. This is, uh, this is really the beginning of it all to a certain extent, isn't it? It is um, in terms of having players in the building. I mean, the coaching staff uh, has been hard at work for a couple months now, for sure. 
Uh, I think the players feel it. It's it's interesting, and, and we say the same thing every year. It's just thank goodness they're here. I mean, you sit in your office down here in in the stadium, and there's uh, you're in front of a TV screen or a computer screen for several months, and you're meeting and putting stuff on paper, and you're not, you know, you believe it's going to work, but you you gotta you gotta see it sort of uh, play out on the field. And now you've finally got players in the building that are going to take the field and compete and uh, the coaches are going to get to coach and it's uh, the smiles on the coaches faces. It's, it's incredible. It happens every year the same way. You're just so tired of being uh, on paper doing X's and O's rather than, you know, on the field uh, cheering the guys on. So it's, it's good to get players in the building. They can feel it certainly from the coaching staff, but uh, we're, we're a happy group. So, Coach uh, O'Shea, Kelly Moore has been referencing the minicamp uh, this morning in CJOB Sports, but for those who are just tuning in, uh, this minicamp, which begins this morning at 1045, what uh, can fans expect from this? Well, I mean, it's it's certainly uh, an introduction for some of these for some of these players to the CFL, the size of the field, uh, our systems for sure. Um, you know, we don't install, uh, I'd say we don't install the full gamut, the full playbook, because we're trying to evaluate these guys. Not everybody here is going to be invited to our, our training camp. We're going to be down. Our roster has to be down to 75 in a, in a week or so. Um, so some of these guys are not going to make it through to main camp. So there is this evaluation process that's going to go on. And, and what we expect is, is guys to be out there and compete on every rep. I told them yesterday, um, you know, they're going to, in, in, in five practices, they're going to get roughly between 80 and 90 reps, like competitive reps in five practices. That's not a lot uh, in my mind. So they've got to bring it on every play. So we expect guys to, to be battling out there on the field. There's, there's no pads on. There's only helmets. Uh, so there's not going to be contact like that. We don't have our O-line and D-line here, just the receivers, DBs, linebackers, and running backs. Um, but but it does get competitive, and and these guys are trying to win spots to the next uh, to the next round of of um, of camp. Michael Shea joins us now on Breakfast with the Bombers mini camp at ten forty five and two fifteen. Two sessions today, and there'll be uh, there'll be fans in the stands, as you know, Coach O'Shea, and a lot of folks will be there to see the Adarius Bowmans of the world. They'll also be uh, looking to get a sneak peek as the at the Manitoba connection, Harris Dembski, LaFrance. But there is definitely, at least from a fan slash analyst point of view, there's going to be a spotlight on middle linebackers. You search for that starting middle la- line linebacker to take you into the season uh yeah there, there's gonna be um you know and and that's what's interesting about it having more like a passing camp there's no there's no run emphasis at all so uh these guys you're gonna see them basically how they move around the field and, and whether or not they can uh, get into zone drops whether they can cover a little bit um but there you know there is going to be a battle and we brought a bunch of guys in that we like and we want to see and uh, we'll see how it all plays out but that that Honestly, that, that battle can't be won until after the second exhibition game. Coach, uh, backup quarterback Darian Durant won't be at minicamp. He's got a personal issue that he'll be uh, taking care of. So that will give uh, some of the uh, lesser-known quarterbacks an opportunity to shine over the next few days. Yeah, and we've got, we've got three young guys in here that we're going to take the bulk of the reps anyway. We want to make sure we, we've got enough information to make good decisions going forward. Once again... Um, you know, there's, there's going to be a handful of guys that won't come to, to the next phase, to our main training camp. Um, 
you know, but there's we we've got to we've got to look at these quarterbacks and give them an opportunity to compete at the next round. Also, one more question here, Coach uh, Mo Leggett tears his Achilles tendon six months ago, and he's going to be on the field. Yeah, he's not going to be competing in the one-on-one session or or uh, probably even the skelly. He'll be doing more of the indie and running around to see how it feels and to get. Um, you know, really to get our trainer's eyes on him, doing a little bit more than he's been doing. Obviously, he's been working extremely hard to come back. Uh, what's incredible is, you know, you think 20 years ago, that, that surgery, that injury was more of a death sentence to pro athletes in whatever sport you were doing. And now guys are recovering quite nicely, whether it's a surgical technique or whatever it is, uh, that the rehab model is 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 good and and these guys can come back and and you know you'd think almost not miss a beat and most put in a lot of time to get to to get to this point now it's to step out on the field and, and move around a little bit more in a in a football sense and once again we have our trainers get an eye on them and, and the coaching staff too well it'll be nice to get outside you don't have to move things inside it'll be a, a beautiful few days for you maybe a little bit cooler in the mornings uh, but should be a-okay football-like weather here in winnipeg coach o'shea thanks for your time on uh, what's uh, obviously a busy day and an exciting day uh, for you and all the coaching staff over at uh, blue bomber hq at igf yeah, thanks for having me on. I look forward to the fans uh, being out here and the players on the field. And, and uh, hey, go Jets, go. Hey, thanks, Coach. <laughs> Coach Mike O'Shea uh, joining us on Breakfast with the Bombers this morning. 10.45 and 2.15. As Maurice Leggett likes to say, does anybody in Winnipeg work? <laughs> One of his best tweets in the last 18 months. He was at Costco uh, in the middle of the day and uh, tweeted out that he was, in fact, at Costco and, and had to muse as to whether or not people in Winnipeg actually had jobs. Now we want to shift our attention to the Royals as we are waiting to find out what the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge will name their newest child. Mm-hmm. This is the third child for William and Kate. The newborn is fifth in the line for the throne. Meanwhile, Princess Charlotte is making history by retaining her spot in line for the throne thanks to the law that was changed back in 2013. Charlotte, the second born, now goes from being the youngest to the middle child, so we thought we would find out more about how birth order can affect a child's personality. We are joined live on 680 CJOB by parenting expert Dune Esty. Dune, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate the access. So is there any scientific proof that uh, indicates birth order affects personality and behavior? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say proof because you can't have the child born again to try it. But there's certainly very strong theories that birth order does absolutely affect uh, personality. So, so, for example, the first child uh, grows or is born into uh, like one or two parents who have never been parents before. So they uh, have a lot of time and energy to focus on their first child. When the second child comes, they're born into a different family because firstly, there's another child. Now they're born into a, a family with um with already that somebody who is the first child. So the, check, the second child has parents who are a little bit more busy. They have less time. They're more relaxed. They're not as neurotic as the first time around. <laughs> and, uh, and now they have a, an older sibling, which the first child didn't have. So it, it absolutely affects them. 
So what about in a high-profile family like the Royals? They're obviously uh, an extreme case, uh, and, and this is a situation that most of us w- would never get to experience. But does this have an influence on the behavior uh, of the kids or, or where they fit in, potentially? I think it absolutely does. Uh, there's a saying in Britain to have when you have two boys, uh, or before when you had two boys before the 2013 ruling, that you had an heir and a spare. So the first child was the heir, and the second child was just a backup. No wonder my brother, my younger brother, has a, a complex. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. We're not even. We're not even anywhere close to royals. I, 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 boy, oh boy, that's a horrible sailing, dune. It is a horrible thing, and and uh, I think certainly with. Um, uh, Harry, I guess he's the second one to William, uh, he was quite lost for a while. I mean, I know a lot of it was because of, of Diana dying, the mom, but certainly the fact that William is going to be king potentially one day, and he gets all the attention. So for Harry, it, it's quite a difficult spot to be in. So I think it's certainly exacerbated when you're uh, royal. They have many more uh, duties and responsibilities and much more of the limelight uh, than most of us regular folks. Our guest is Dune Esty. She is a certified parent educator, a partner at Parenting Network, Inc., the website parentingnetwork.ca. And does the middle child end up getting the raw deal? Like, if, if do parents try to do it right the second time out and then they end up kind of spoiling the third child because they're the, the, the baby of the family? Well, I, I think actually the parents try to do it right the first time. So the eldest is often the most responsible one, the one who is the highest achiever and kind of a perfectionist. By the second child, the parents have relaxed a little bit and they depend on the first child to uh, actually take care of the second one or look after them or set an example. Now, the second child often will either try to compete with the first child or they say, I'm not going there, I'm going a completely different route. So often the second child will be the rebel of the family. Now, if you have a third child, a baby, then the second child often is stuck a little bit in the middle and they are more likely to be flexible and more friendly. Uh, They either have find they don't have a role or they are more cooperative and reliable and they try to bridge between the eldest and the uh, last born. We try not to say baby. We try to say last born. <laughs> my buddy Chuck LaFlesh. You don't want to label your kids. My buddy Chuck LaFlesh is the middle child and he says he is the negotiator. He's the bridge that binds. I, unfortunately, we don't have enough time for you to confirm what everybody knows and that's the oldest child is definitely always the most intelligent, <laughs> right, Dune? Well, no, I would not say that for sure. And I'm the, I'm the eldest in my family, but that's not necessarily, uh, that's not a given. No. All right. We'll have to have you back on to talk about that another time. It was great to uh, meet you. Thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Dune Esty, certified parent educator, partner at Parenting Network, Inc., and an authoritative speaker. More information at parentingnetwork.ca. Oh, my. Is that what I think it is? It's time. Oh, and Bron's in there. He's doing it too. Jerry, what we have, I believe you have a fever. I have a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs>
<laughs> Blue Oyster Cult, Burton Cummings Theater, Friday, August 17th. Tickets on sale Friday, April 2nd. Or pardon me, I guess that would... Uh, no, pardon me, 27th. You're going back in time, brother. I'm going back in time, man. Yeah, yeah. April 27th. That's this Friday. Yep. Uh, four decades worth of work. Blue Oyster Cult has been thrilling fans of intelligent hard rock worldwide with powerful auto albums loaded with classic songs and they'll be making their way to the Burton Cummings Theatre as you mentioned Friday, August 17th. Now there is a pre-sale which is tomorrow. It's going to run from 10 a.m. tomorrow until 10 p.m. Thursday. So 10 a.m. tomorrow to 10 p.m. Thursday pre-sale. Uh, Ticketmaster the code is CJOB Our eyes are firmly focused on Toronto this morning. We will be getting you up to date uh, with the latest whenever it breaks. We've heard from Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, earlier this morning. But we want to talk a little bit about how Winnipeg Jets are influencing the economy downtown. How big of a jump or a bump in business have the Jets game brought to local restaurants? We're expected to hear an update on the street party for the next round of Jets uh, home playoff games in the next uh, little while. And the three street parties from round one kept on expanding, expanding, and getting larger each outing until they reached a capacity of 15,000 on Friday night. So many restaurants, too, packed with fans, not just downtown, but quite frankly across the city, I'm sure, looking to watch all the games on a big screen. I was walking down Corden and uh, the patio at Teo's. They were were installing a couple of TVs outside to make sure that they could capitalize because the weather was so nice. Nice. So we thought we'd find out how big of this economic bump there is. We're joined live on 680 CJOB by Tim Fedenu, who is executive Executive Director of the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. Mr. Fedenu, good morning, sir. Good morning, and how are you this morning? Doing great, Tim. I mean, it's a difficult morning on several fronts, of course, uh, but uh, the, the the feeling in our city is is perhaps unparalleled. Uh, I'd like to say probably back until since the Blue Bombers won the Grey Cup in 1990, and technology has changed so dramatically and the way we're connected, and this idea of shared experiences is something that we crave, and if you can't get into the arena or don't have the wherewithal to get downtown and get into the street party, there are lots of options around the city and none better uh, than a local restaurant or lounge. And absolutely. And you know what? It's as much as technology has certainly come into the forefront, it's a good old-fashioned great feeling that's actually overcoming the city and just the celebratory uh, nature of what's happening right now with our Winnipeg Jets. So just when we look at downtown with those street parties that are happening with 15,000 people on the street and then another 15,000 in the arena once these games are over and many of them I'm sure spill into the various corners of downtown uh, restaurants must be loving this right now yeah and I think it's actually uh, it's not just after it's before and it's not just before the game it's actually during the course of the day so there's been a number of restaurants that uh, are uh, not even closing between lunch and, and dinner anymore so you know just during Jets uh, Jets games so there's there's that, that whole idea of I'm going to the game or I'm going to a street party and I'm going to take this in and I'm going to celebrate the whole um, the whole space of time during that that day that the game is going on so uh, there's that piece of it as well and uh, you know and, and you know and of course you you alluded to it earlier. There's that that whole sense of getting together with friends and and family and and watching the game in a uh, in your local restaurant slash bar and and being able to take that in. It's exciting times for us. 
Uh, Tim, obviously we benefited uh, greatly uh, here in Winnipeg with two of the three games in round one being on a Friday night. Uh, I can only, I don't know, look, need look no further than my brother's experience who went to a place that he had never heard of before, had such a good time on uh, uh, during game two that he went back there for game five, the Garrick Hotel on Gary Street in Winnipeg, which has been around forever. And like I said, he had such a good time uh, during game two that uh, he went back on game five and it was jam-packed. Uh, and, and this is a, a location that uh, most people have never even heard of. Well, I think there's a lot of hidden gems in the city and uh, certainly uh, events like the, uh, well, events like the, the whole move in the playoffs for the Winnipeg Jets is uh, is going to bring out a lot of secret gems that uh, are, are going to be exciting that uh, people are going to rediscover or discover, you know, uh, for the first time. Um, it's 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 been great, you know. Not only that, but the visitors coming, uh, whether it be the press crews or uh, uh, folks following their teams, is uh, you know it, it's going to be a great uh, level of uh, of uh, exposure for us, being able to share those uh, wonderful dining experiences that we can offer in Winnipeg. We've got a world class, uh, you know, uh, cuisine scene in Winnipeg, and being able to share that uh, with with, uh, with with folks visiting is going to be is, is is a great opportunity. Tim, do you have any? We we only have about a minute left here, or so. But do you have any idea on what the actual economic impact is going to mean for your industry? Well, you know, it's 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 all going to be uh, um, uh, supposition at this point. But I think you know, suffice it to say, uh, what it, what it's doing is, is it's really waking up the city. It's a it's an air of celebration in a lot of ways, and that celebratory. Um, um, Activity is, uh, is is going to manifest itself in just a whole lot of positive economic uh, impact on a lot of the restaurants. So you know, I, I mean, it's it's hard to say at this point, but suffice it to say that every uh, everything I've read about things like this are very very positive on a restaurant scene. All right, Tim Fedenu, Executive Director of the Manitoba Restaurant and Food Services Association. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much. McGarry with Greg Mackling on this Tuesday morning on 680 CJOB and prior to Global News at 9 o'clock that we, we referenced a situation in Victoria Beach where firefighters are not walking off the job just yet. Firefighters in Victoria Beach threatened to walk off the job after their fire chief was fired by the rural municipality. This is according to the deputy fire chief, Wolf Kraft. Kraft said there was a meeting Thursday night where firefighters voted in solidarity with laid-off chief Brad Patzer. In a press release, the RM of Victoria Beach, uh, Reeve Brian Hodgson, said Patzer was fired for his lack of communication. Deputy Fire Chief Wolf Kraft joins us live on 680 CGOB to give us the latest. Good morning, uh, Mr. Kraft. How are you today? I'm good. Good morning. We appreciate you taking the time here. Uh, tell us, for those, before we uh, really dig into this, uh, for those unfamiliar, tell us a little bit about Victoria Beach, because I think for the most part, most people in Winnipeg think of Victoria Beach as a place you go to in the summer, but that's not necessarily the case. Well, you're, you're kind of right. Uh, most people do uh, just use this as a summer area. Uh, Victoria Beach is kind of a uh, unique area in that a uh, good part of Victoria Beach is uh, an area where only in the summertime for two months, only bicycles and walking is for the most part permitted. So it's kind of unique uh, summer spot, but absolutely in the wintertime, uh, we don't shut down. There's still things going on. We have uh, an increasing number of residents moving out here permanently. 
So the situation where the firefighters were threatening to walk off the job, uh, that potential crisis is on hold. So what is going on with this possible vote? So I guess to back it up a little bit, uh, last week, obviously, uh, council decided to terminate uh, Brad Patzer as fire chief. And the reason being uh, that they gave was for insubordination and lack of communication. And uh, but not as his performance as fire chief. So we're sitting there thinking, hang on a second here. The guy's been a great leader. Uh, he's been a mentor to all of us. And why would you fire someone over a communications issue? And we felt that that issue should have been able to be resolved uh, with uh, professional mediation and workplace conflict resolution support. How, how large is the fire department in Victoria Beach? And is it uh, professional firefighters? Are you all volunteers? Give us the breakdown if you could, Wolf. Uh, well, we are professional firefighters. We also all have day jobs, so we're not full-time on this. Uh, we have a complement of about 27 members uh, in our fire and medical services. We do uh, medical first response as well as fire response. Uh, within the department, we have... Uh, over half of our firefighters are level one or higher. And uh, the medical response team that we have, we have some that are full EMS and some that are uh, just first responders. What was the purported communications issue? Do you know? Well, I absolutely do know exactly what it is. And the more that I dig into it, what I'm finding that this is a, more of a political issue than it really is anything else. Um, Council, and I don't know how much detail I can get into, but what I do know is that our current council oper- has always operated on a, on a uh, basis whereby the different departments, municipal departments, reported to council committees or to council. The council is currently in the process of changing that structure whereby the different various areas like fire, police, parks, rec, all those departments will report to the CAO. That is currently a bylaw that they are trying to pass. It went through first reading last week. What it appears is that council is already trying to run the municipality in the fashion where the different committees answer to the CAO. And this appears to be where the problem started in that the CAO has been directing the various different committees, and particularly the fire committee, and yet the bylaws clearly state that the chief is to report to council, not to CAO. So when the CAO tried to tell the chief what to do, the chief got his back up and would not communicate with the CAO. He attempted to communicate with council, and council never, ever gave him that opportunity. Could this be as basic as a personality conflict between the CAO and Chief Patzer? Wolf? It absolutely is. It's looking like it has nothing more to do than a personality conflict between three members of our community, well, one member of our community and two members of council and administration of council. So this uh, potential vote then that could happen where the firefighters, uh, with your fellow firefighters, had threatened to walk off the job, uh, the, the vote has been held off. When might that happen? Well, the only reason that they didn't vote to walk off last night is because Brad's wife came to the meeting last night and she asked, she came uh, to speak on behalf of Brad and Brad asked us not to walk off at this point. I reached out to Brad and to the Reeve 
uh, to seek professional mediation uh, to resolve this uh, uh, conflict between three people. And Brad has agreed to it. And the Reeve has texted me back that he absolutely will not. I totally do not understand the rationale behind that. If the firefighters walk off, the implications, we met yesterday morning with a member of the insurance brokers of Manitoba, and he kind of laid out what the implications for insurance would be if the firefighters were to walk off. And basically any residence or property with a five-mile radius of our hall would be impacted by a 25 to 40% increase in their insurance premiums, as well as there could be limited payouts if there was to be a loss after the department walked off the job and they hadn't changed their policy. Now, you just outlined what could be a severe financial impact to the community. What sort of impact is this impasse having within the community amongst cottage owners and permanent residents? Are they behind city council or the town council? Are they behind the firefighters? Are they divided? Where do, where do they sit? Do you know, Wolf? As far as I know, I have not had one person respond to me in a negative fashion. So far, they are 100% the firefighter behind the firefighters. I have had many, many people say, you guys better just walk off. Council needs to listen. Council is not listening. I spent all day yesterday with community leaders here trying to figure out a resolve. I had invited council to attend. They did not. We were on the phone back and forth with them throughout the day, and they did not budge one inch. And I just don't understand it. Like I'm so dismayed in their lack of leadership, especially Reeve Brian Hodgson. Surely he should be able to see that the the impact that this would have on the community uh, is is so great that I don't understand it. Thank you, Wolf. We appreciate your uh, time on this. Uh, I imagine we'll be reaching out again as this story uh, continues. It doesn't seem to be as though it'll be ending anytime soon. Well, no, we did have a public rally here on Sunday and council did not attend. Council is having a meeting uh, next week on Tuesday at their chambers in Winnipeg. And we urge all uh, property owners and taxpayers in the arm of Victoria Beach and arm of Alexander that are impacted by this to attend that meeting and voice their concerns. Wolf Craft is the Deputy Fire Chief in Victoria Beach. Thank you very much, Deputy Chief Craft. And we have some breaking news out of Toronto. The man arrested in connection with a deadly van attack has been charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. 25-year-old Alex Manassian is also facing 13 counts of uh, attempted murder. Pardon me, Alec Manassian, and he appeared in a Toronto court this morning. Right now we want to switch gears and tell you about something that happened last night in the world of sport that doesn't happen all that often. And it's actually quite a startling result because it actually caught you off guard, Greg, because you went to bed, I think, uh, expecting one outcome based on the score of this game. And you awoke uh, or you got to work today to realize, what? Yes, the Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, I'm not a fan of the T-Wolves by uh, any stretch of the imagination, but I was hoping that maybe they could upset the Houston Rockets, who are uh, one of the juggernaut uh, teams in the National Basketball Association this year. They were leading when I fell asleep, and then I... Went to NBA.com to see that the Rockets won 119 to 100. Oh, geez, that's too bad. What is this? 
The Rockets scored 50 points in the third quarter, so nearly half of their points came in one quarter. And I said to you, that's got to be a record of some kind, but it's not. Took some digging, but I found that the most points scored, because I kept getting the most points scored in a quarter by a player, which is 37, believe it or not, in one quarter of basketball. But the most points scored in a single quarter by an NBA team Led by John Havlicek and Dave Cowens, the Boston Celtics were absolutely blowing out the Buffalo Braves on October 20th, 1972. At the end of three quarters, the Celtics were up 103-60, to and the game seemed over. But then the Braves went on to score 58 points My word. in that fourth quarter, a number that remains higher than any other single-quarter point total for a team in NBA history. They still lost. The Braves still lost the game, 126-118, but they put up a heroic effort, 58 points. And in case you're just curious, because I was too, the most points ever scored in a half was the Phoenix Suns back in 1990. In November of 1990 against Denver, they scored 107 points in the first half. What was the final score in that game? 173 to 143. Oh, my word. The Denver Nuggets <laughs> were notoriously bad defensively yeah. and scored a ton of points in that era, but I don't ever remember a, a 173 to 143. And my Phoenix word. was well known too for its uh they, they were a small fast. Was that the Dan Marley era? Yeah, and Barkley I think was yeah, on that team. They scored a ton of points, right? Uh the Buffalo Braves by the way. Uh, a convoluted path to becoming the Los Angeles Clippers eventually. That's right. If you're That's right. Yeah, there you go. Just like the, the Los Angeles Lakers were once upon a time the Minneapolis Lakers. And uh, the Utah Jazz were, I guess, the uh, New Orleans Jazz once yeah. upon a time. Now, you played Rocket by Def Leppard. And that led me to wonder, because there's that part of the song... Where they, it's the, the chorus where they say rocket and then they say something else. And for basically three decades, I've had no idea what they say there. <laughs> they say, yeah. They say, yeah. rocket, yeah. <laughs> so Jeff Courier's here. Let's go. Let's play the, that part of the song and then ask Jeff if he can figure it out. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I know what it is now, and I still don't hear it. Spend the night alone. Any is that idea? It? I no. What are you talking about? That's Just not. <laughs> play it again. <laughs> Unintelligible. All right, here All we right. go. It's coming up here. Here we go. So. <laughs> Finally, I don't know why it's taking me this long to look it up. It's I mean, one of those things where I hear it stubborn. in the co- Are you sure it's just not gibberish? They couldn't think of a line and they just yeah. kind of mumbled something? Yeah. Satellite of love. Of course. Which is... What kind of lyric is that? Not sure. It's a dumb lyric. <laughs> yeah. I will, I'll be your satellite of love. Yeah. Aww. Just looking at the rest of these lyrics, I realized that I, this is there was a reason why I didn't pay attention to the lyrics for this song. It's just a great, it's a great tune, yeah. but the lyrics are weird, man. De- decent drinking song. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shannon Lee Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. And